Global law and global business go hand in hand, but never seem to keep pace with each other. The importance on the global stage of developing and developed nations waxes and wanes while consumption and interconnectedness steadily increase, all the while laws and regulations change incessantly, requiring businesses to stay nimble. But how do we make sense of it all? Welcome to Global Law and Business, hosted by Harris Brickens, international business attorneys. I'm Fred Rockefort. And I'm Jonathan Bench. Every week, we take a targeted look at legal and economic developments in locales around the world as we try to decipher global trends in law and business with the help of international experts. We cover continents, countries, regimes, governance, finance, legal developments, and whatever is trending on Twitter. We cover the important, the seemingly unimportant, the relatively simple, and the complex. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Please connect with us on social media to comment, and suggest future topics and guests. Today, we are delighted to welcome Dan McLeod and Mark Plum to Harris Brickens Global Law and Business. Dan and Mark are directors at East-West Associates, a leading provider of commercial, operational, and risk management solutions and seamless implementation to Western companies competing in the ever-changing China, Asia, Mexico, and Central Eastern Europe markets. Dan, Mark, welcome to Global Law & Business. Thank you very much. We'd like to get things started by having you both tell us a little bit about yourselves and EWA. Before the podcast, I was taking a look at your bios, and Mark, there's one thing in particular that I'd love to hear about, and that's your experience opening up a representative office in Vietnam in 1994, which was really um, right after the the U.S. embargo ended. So uh, if you could just tell us a little bit about that experience as as you introduce yourself. Thank you, Fred. This is this is Mark Plum, and uh, yeah, as we said, we've been with East West now for six, seven, eight years. East West is a is a of a boutique consulting firm that really focuses on a lot of U- USA companies who are in China, have been in China, want to grow in China, perhaps leave China based on or expand out of China based on recent uh, you know social economic events going on with COVID, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and myself in particular, I lived in Asia over 20 years. The last 12, 15 years of my time in Asia, I was in, in China. I was president of a company called Briggs & Stratton. Uh, we had five, I had five manufacturing facilities throughout Asia and Japan, China, uh, Chongqing, Shanghai, in the Philippines, and as well as an a, a assembly operation in Vietnam. And roughly over 1,000 people. And... Um, and the $200, $300 million revenue business. Um, as Fred mentioned early on, uh, in my early years, I was down in Thailand working for a company called Train Air Conditioning. And when President uh, Clinton lifted the embargo uh, with Vietnam, uh, I was living in Thailand and, and was traveling back and forth weekly or monthly, I should say, up to Ho Chi Minh City and opened up a rep officer in 94, established a, a distribution center, established an s- assembly operation for, for train air conditioning. As in the early years in, 
in Vietnam opening up, one of the first things that went in were large hotels, and then the large hotels, train air conditioning systems were pretty dominant. So pretty exciting times back in the, in the early 90s in Southeast Asia. Hi, everyone. Uh, yeah, I uh, also had a long career in Asia. I, I come up from a little bit, a little different background from Mark. Uh, came up through manufacturing, operations management, engineering management, and uh, moved to China in the late, late 90s as, as many companies were expanding there and went there to uh, set up our first factory there in, in a JV environment. Um, subsequently, uh, spent 21 years in Asia, the majority of that in China, uh, but also seven years in Southeast Asia based in Singapore, but covering the region. Um, and then a year in the Philippines also uh, running an operation. Uh, most of my experience has been in the chemical industry, but also done some some work in uh, food processing, a little bit of pharma and electronics processing. Uh, but again, uh, primarily from an operations standpoint. In the last uh, five years with East West, I've had the opportunity to work uh, and expand beyond that work on projects in China, but also uh, helping companies uh, expand their supply chains or footprints uh, into Central Eastern Europe and Mexico as as well, and, and, and in addition to other destinations in Southeast Asia. So, uh, yeah, uh, that's my background again, 20, 20 plus years in Asia, uh, working with U.S. companies. Now, I noticed on your website, you've got some great case studies. We'd love to hear a flavor of the kinds of projects you undertake. Of course, when I, people probably think this about lawyers, I say, lawyers, you do one thing. When in reality, lawyers do a lot of different things. And so from the outside, I'm thinking, all right, your, uh, your company does a lot of consulting. You help them figure out what's going on, uh, manage operational risks, management solutions. But tell us what you do day to day and what your clients value that you bring to their operations. This is Mark. Maybe I'll talk about one of the, one of the earlier earlier ones we did, one of the lar- well, not earlier ones, but one of the larger ones. So, as we know, China has been, um, you know, in you know, twenty years ago, everybody went to China because it was you know large domestic market uh, and or inexpensive labor to export out of. And of course, those things have changed quite a bit. So we've been hired quite a bit the last five years for really site uh, site selection. You know, if People come to us and say, "Hey, we're thinking about leaving China, uh, or we're thinking about diversifying and putting some other bets in Asia outside of China, so we're not so not so uh, dependent on China." And one of the early ones we did was uh, a large multinational manufacturer, but with an actually an iconic brand, asked us to first maybe find a new site for them in China, and we did that. And then we said, "Hey, you know." Uh, where you sell most of your stuff, we've noticed most of it isn't really staying in China. It's going to Southeast Asia. So maybe we should put together a study for you that says maybe you should look, begin to look outside of China. And now this was before COVID. And this was even before tariffs, you know, five, six years ago. Look outside of China yeah, as the ASEAN market is a, a large market and you're doing some business there that, you know, at, at present. So we put a quick study together, looked at the Philippines looked at Vietnam, looked at Thailand, looked at Malaysia, and we look at all the inputs of components and, you know, labor availability, labor supply, uh, taxes, tax incentives, land, land incentives, cost to build, et cetera, et cetera. And we, uh, we put together, uh, we recommended Thailand, uh, south of Bangkok and Rayong, and then they asked us, okay, you know, can you help us now? go ahead and uh, find the piece of land and build the building and 
hire the people and help us start it up? And we said, sure. So basically from the time we told them it was Thailand, um, uh, it took us about took us two years to then secure the right piece of property, secure the right design engineering firms, uh, make sure we had the right component supplies, and then started the business up. And they, and uh, that was again that was pre COVID, pre tariffs. So now they they kind of look like geniuses because they were ahead of that, you know, you know, which was which was, was all by luck actually. The reason they really wanted to get out of China was at that time was rising labor rates. So that was one case study that was that was on our website that maybe some of the audience might be interested in. Some uh, other activity we've been involved in, uh, you know, the last few years, uh, things have really shifted in terms of not just tariffs, but uh, uh, companies and freight rates, uh, COVID uh, travel restrictions and disruptions, and companies looking to uh, reconfigure supply chains, become less uh, less dependent on one geographic area. And, and much of this is, is China-centric, but uh, it could impact a number of areas. But more and more companies are looking to regionalize supply chains or at least diversify out of one primary manufacturing location in, in China. And so we've been doing more projects recently, looking at opportunities within specific sectors, specific component types to to source uh, closer to home, uh, primarily in Mexico, where uh, we've got several projects going on to help identify potential suppliers. Uh, once identified, uh, qual- work with them to qualify them, uh, sort of uh, help facilitate uh, the, the transfer of technology and product manufacturing knowledge uh, into a, a North American uh, supplier. And again, this is quite a bit of activity recently there, but uh, and, and, uh, in some cases, we've been quite successful with that. That's great. So let's turn to the topic of uh, the trade war, import tariffs, increased shipping costs, all of that. What has been the, the global impact? Do you see a lot of companies really taking a serious evaluation of their global supply chain, global operations? Uh, are a lot of companies looking to diversify away from China? If so, uh, where are they going? What, what kind of things are your clients coming to you now for, say, in the last couple of years since the onset of COVID, uh, you know, even, even before that with the, with the trade war? Sure. Yeah, this is Mark, and as you can imagine, uh, I mean, there's all kinds of combinations, and and people are kind of all over the the board on this. What we've early on when COVID first started and the tariffs first started, frankly, in you know 2017, I think there was a feeling that the tariffs were going to go away and it was all going to get back to normal. So not much was really done early on, and then of course COVID kicked in. So so now, yeah. We get, I mean, it's, it's most of our calls are, you know, how do we shorten our supply chains? In, in the early years, the large companies, you know, they call them the General Motors for sake or, or, or GE, you know, we had just in time supply chains where you could, you could have things spread all around the world and just, and, and pretty much have it dialed in where you're, you're trucking, your suppliers, your, your, your freight costs, you know, at that time, a, a container out of, out of Guang, Guangdong, uh, Guangzhou to LA was $3,000. And, and, and so everything, when it was working was very, very efficient. Uh, now, 
And these were the big companies that could really manage that well. Now we know the efficiencies aren't there. The freight rates, you know, for that same container are fifteen, twenty thousand dollars. So we find a lot of companies, uh, and, and when they come to us, the first thing we always ask them is, "Where do you, where are you selling most of your product?" Right? Okay. And so let's say an example I gave earlier uh, about the, the factory we moved down to move them down to Thailand is because they were selling most of their product in in ASEAN and selling most of their product in uh, in Australia and New Zealand. Subsequently, we've had many companies uh, who um, have you know are selling other places. We had Dan and I worked on a project about two years ago, or a year and a half ago now, where you know a million of their units were leaving China and going to uh, going to Germany and Italy. So we put together they wanted to be they wanted to shorten that supply chain from, from you know getting it across the Atlantic all, all the way to uh, to Western Europe. So. We put a study together and recommended and built a factory for them in Poland. So again, that was all based on their where their consumption was, and then we and then once you find the right area, then you, as I said earlier, you have to look at labor and really labor availability. I mean, chasing inexpensive labor that can always change as it may be not be so inexpensive in the future, but labor availability is critical and component supply is critical, and then shortening your supply chain. So. And then obviously, if it's if it's consumption's big in the USA, Mexico was getting a lot of attention, and we're spending a lot of time working on on site selections and component supply and labor availability in Mexico, with an eye on how do you get that product from there up to the United States. And then now, now that supply chain is is hours, you know, not thirty, sixty uh, days, and it's it's. It's tens to thousands of dollars, you know, not fifteen, twenty thousand dollars a truckload or a container. So, you know, a lot of emphasis on shortening supply chains and trying to get your production and your your component supply and everything as close to consumption as possible. And additionally, a big part of that, and, and one of the challenges there is that in in China, when we think about China, what's happened there in the last twenty five years, you've got extremely uh, broad supplier bases to support a number of different industries. It's it's both broad and deep, uh, from you know from from basic materials all through sophisticated components that go into into final products. Finding uh, an area outside of China, looking globally for manufacturing and sourcing, presents a challenge of um, you can't go anywhere else and find that same breadth and depth of of capabilities, manufacturing capabilities. So it's very much part of lining up the requirements with what the, the, the appropriate geography that can support it and to understand where there's deficiencies in that geography, where you you may very well uh, continue to be beholden to a, an Asian source, uh, but re- recognize and determine if that'll work for the client. I'd like to take a closer look at COVID and the impact that it's having specifically on, on operations by, by your company, but also by, by your, your, your clients. Right now, uh, we're seeing, in, in, especially in some Asian countries, there, there's a real debate as to where the balance needs to be in terms of trying to uh, prevent spread of the of the of the virus and at the same time allowing business activities to to continue looking at, at the impact that that y- you've seen um, directly and also 
the impact on on your clients as as they try to get on with it with their business what are your 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 perspectives on that what what have what have you seen and what do you think needs to happen going forward well yeah this this is mark uh as as we all know and we've been reading of course and we know that china is you know really from a top down has been very draconian on 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 shutting down portions and segments of their business so and so we've had and it's been kind of a um, you know it's 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 a compounding effect you know early on we had some of our some of our, our clients you know their suppliers were in certain cities that were totally shut down wuxi wuhan uh, except in you know harbin where they're then so their suppliers are shut down so they're not working so in turn they can't produce their products and in turn they can't ship so then what happens is those suppliers then were opened up and then the ports were shut down because there was an outbreak of, of COVID in, in, in Guangzhou and in, in that area. So the ports were then shut down. And then in turn, uh, after that, uh, you know, then the, now you're, now you're six, eight, 10 weeks behind. Now you're 15, 18 weeks, uh, from the time you order would have shipped, uh, to have gotten it where it would have been, you know, three to six weeks prior. So, um, you know, China's going to do what China's going to do, right, when it comes to this. And uh, so most of our, almost all of our clients are, and again, we're not promoting leaving China at all. We're just, but most of our clients are looking to have, you know, uh, diversify their footprint. So in the case of when China's working well, you know, perfect. Because as Dan mentioned earlier, China has spent 25 years developing this infrastructure. Now, I mean, I first went there in 1993, so I've kind of grown up with you know, going there with the black pedal bike now, you know, 30 years later up to the high speed trains, right? So I've kind of seen it all there. And uh, their ports, their airports, their freeways, their trains, they're world class. And, and it's 30 years and billions and billions of dollars of investment. So you, you want to keep that, you want to keep your toe on that, in that water in that because it's of, of the, you know, the, you know, the, the, the three, the billions of people. Uh, however, when things aren't going so well in China, you need to be able to shift sometimes production. So that's why, you know, depending on where you're selling and where you're consuming, you know, having a footprint maybe in Southeast Asia, having a footprint maybe in Mexico, depending, having a footprint in Central Europe to supply Europe is really um, advantageous when and when you can be able to, to to adjust. And it's for the large multinationals, they've been doing this for, you know, 40, 50 years. I was, we were doing this when I was with General Electric when I was 25 years old. Uh, the smaller companies find it more difficult because they may only have one, one, uh, one manufacturing site. So, in that case, they may have to have in another country or another region maybe just some sourcing arrangements so they can at least get components. So that's been kind of uh, you know from what I've seen here in the last five years, really with the changes and what people are looking for. Some other challenges more recently, particularly with COVID, uh, as this has gone on and travel restrictions have extended and extended. I think. When all of us began this, we were thinking, okay, this might be a three-month or six-month undertaking, and we can, you know, we can muddle through. Uh, it's it's been much longer now. You know, it's two years now, and in the in the case of China and some parts of Asia, uh, it's not clear when the end of this is. We're going to see the end of this, where unrestricted travel is 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 common again. Um, companies have really struggled in many cases to hold their organizations together 
to maintain focus to take on uh, either expand their market or take on new products, product development in in the, in the local areas. Where um, uh, three years ago, there was a, quite a bit of back and forth. Uh, executives on both sides of the Pacific traveling back and forth for uh, to maintain relationships, for product development, for business planning, for strategic planning. Um, those that networking, that face-to-face networking, essentially stopped. Now, now virtual methods, you know, whether it's Zoom or Teams, um, that's some replacement for it. But it's uh, becoming increasingly difficult. And we talked to clients that are that have had to take um, uh, steps to uh, really try to enhance the the connectivity within their organization. And the ones that we we talked to that have had long stable organizations in place overseas uh, where relationships have been built over time, they seem to be weathering better. But those organizations that, that maybe have been are newer or perhaps it's an acquisition or perhaps there's a need for change in those organizations, changing personnel either through attrition or perhaps performance issues, they are struggling mightily to uh, to be able to enact those, to be able to, to make progress. And in those cases, uh, they, you know, they unfortunately seem to be sort of settling, having to settle for sort of a status quo. And, and, and many of their longer term projects or strategic projects are either going slower or on hold until we get to the end of, uh, end of the travel restrictions. Just on that note a little bit, some of that stuff that, and Dan's exactly right, that we've had clients most of our clients haven't been able to travel to China for, for two years. So, and if they're, if they're organized pretty well, you know, they can take care of their HR stuff because, and, and they can third party some of their HR and they, you know, they're auditing and tax. Well, most of them already had local accounting firms and they might have you the big, some of the big four for, you know, for audit and, and tax and that sort of thing. Where we see where a lot of them, the mid, the mid-sized company, the billion-dollar company, the billion to two billion, where he was still doing a lot of product development on the on the USA side, and, the, and then moving that design and product development then into into Asia into their factories there, that has suffered because you can't get your product engineers and your product development people back, you know, either from USA to China or from China to the USA to to get up to speed because pure you know, pure design, pure in, in, in China is is the big firms can do it for sure. You know, as I said, you know, the General Motors, but that billion dollar company typically still doesn't have pure raw design in China. They're, they're relying a lot on headquarters. And if headquarters people can't travel there, it's really affected their product development cycles. I'd like to learn more from you about some of the upcoming ASEAN nations that are viable manufacturing alternatives to China. I know you've touched on Vietnam, touched on Thailand. I'm curious about Malaysia, Indonesia, Philippines. Can you comment about the, you know, maybe some of the darlings that are up and coming, some of the some of the things that those countries might be facing uh, in order to get to a position where they can collectively challenge China and, and replace uh, or at least kind of replicate what you can get in China? Both Dan and I, we haven't lived in, lived out there a long time in different countries, kind of have different expertises in certain areas. So in my case, uh, having you know spent a lot of time living in Thailand from 90 to 95, and then, as I mentioned earlier, opening up the, uh, the Vietnam when the embargo was lifted, um, 
we like in the, in those two areas, uh, the case of Thailand, uh, and people will laugh when I don't laugh when I say this, but Thailand and Bangkok was really China before China. It was China, meaning uh, in the late '80s, early '90s, all those companies that were really so so successful in Thailand, then a lot of moved up to China because they were just like everyone else, uh, chasing inexpensive labor. But uh, so in Thailand, great auto industry, great auto support industry. I think it's the fourth or fifth largest auto market in auto manufacturing in, in, in the world. Um, Ford, Ford Motor Company, for example, when they came out with their new Ranger about four years ago, picked, introduced it in Thailand before they introduced it in their factories in the States. And that's what was, you know, think about it, almost unheard of in the, in the early days. You'd always build something, introduce it first in the States, and then take it overseas. But in this case, Ford, you know, introduced it first in Thailand and then brought it back to the States. So, you know, a lot of great, uh, you know, elect, uh, electronics companies, uh, healthcare companies, uh, you know, plastic, petrochemicals. So Thailand's really good. Um, downside is labor rates have come up a little bit, but they're still, still about half of what China is. Uh, and then, of course, Vietnam, not as sophisticated as uh, – and doesn't have the, quite the infrastructure that Thailand does yet, you know, be it components or be it, uh, you know, be it uh, trained staff. However, their labor rates are about half of, uh, of Thailand. So, you know, so if you look at China, you know, and then bank Thailand's half of uh, – China and labor, and then Vietnam is half of half of, of Thailand. So you can kind of bookends, you know, you know those areas pretty well. Um, uh, and then lastly, and then all that Dan we talk about other areas. But then we like we like Malaysia, but you know, quite frankly, we labor rates in Malaysia. Uh, you have to be very specific in really what you want to have done there because their labor rates are are, are higher than uh, in many cases higher than, than China. And I'll, I'll let Dan talk about the areas that he understands really well. Yeah. You know, recently, in the last couple of years, uh, spent some time, more time looking at the Philippines. And uh, things are, I want to say, from a business friendliness standpoint, things are progressing well and, and some interesting developments there. Uh, got to know a little bit about the uh, area around what used to be Clark Air Force Base, but generally known as Clark uh, Free Trade Zone, north of Manila, which is being developed into a, a major uh, multi-purpose hub, both for manufacturing and logistics, um, and, and trying to attract uh, regional headquarters is there as well. It's been quite impressive. But really, the story in the Philippines is around the electronics and electrical equipment industry. That's uh, uh, that's their uh, area of expertise. It's an area where you can find uh, very skilled, capable workers at a at a very reasonable price, uh, decent infrastructure and, and decent supplier base to support that, and uh, you've the local uh, the local uh, population that come that have come up through multinational companies are rather skilled and capable in sourcing uh, both uh, domestically and also d sourcing from other uh, other parts of Asia, but particularly China and Southeast Asia. So for, for the electronics and electrical equipment industry, we you know found that to be pretty attractive. And from developments along the lines of being supported for business, that's, uh, uh, you can see uh, good progress there. Um, you know, nobody thinks of uh, Singapore as a manufacturing destination. Uh, uh, it's a small country and it's really, you know, extremely well-developed and, and really high cost of living and high, high cost to operate there. But they've also developed some very uh, 
interesting capabilities where um, uh, where they rely on uh, land and people and, and manufacturing assets nearby in Indonesia or across the border in Malaysia to uh, support a manufacturing, perhaps a product development, uh, high-level quality assurance, uh, regional sales and, and marketing efforts based in Singapore, but with the manufacturing sector close by in a lower cost economy. So I, I think that's interesting. And in a variety of industries, um, I mentioned electronics, but also medical devices, uh, 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 biochemicals, uh, pharmaceutical industry is also heavily invested there. Uh, so those are some of the places that we see a lot of activity in the last couple of years. Yeah. One one real, real quick note on that is uh, – depending on what you do and depending on what the country is looking for, right? You know, uh, in the case of that prop, that one we, as I mentioned, we took the Rayong, uh, this, this company was, uh, was the Thai, the Thai board of investment BOI was very, very excited about having one of this company. So they put out some, some pretty good incentives in this case. I mean, of course, land and all that sort of thing, but as far as corporate income tax, uh, 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 abatements or, or incentives, they were able to, and we and we were helped them, of course, and negotiated with the board of investment. Seven years of no corporate income tax whatsoever, and another five years, I believe it was, at fifty percent. So you know, most startups, you know, you don't make money the first couple of years. So getting a tax break for three years doesn't really do you that much good. But you start typically making money the third, fourth year. So in this case, and they were able to, uh, you know, substantially reduce their 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 tax burden had they had stayed up in China, where they had already they had already exhausted all their tax incentives. So, depending on what you're doing and depending on what the country is looking for, there can be some very attractive uh, incentives being offered. So, in our work, we're definitely seeing an increase in the number of companies that are looking for. China exits, whether these are partial or, or complete, uh, whether they are based on a desire to expand that footprint as you described, or whether they, they have bigger issues with, with China. And this is something that, frankly, we've been seeing even, even before the, uh, the, the tariffs, even before COVID. Um, and as, as you pointed out, we, we, this is not uh, something we, we directly advocate. We we think every company has a has a different set of factors to to consider, but it's certainly something that is becoming more more common. So, in your view, what are the keys to uh, to a smooth transition for a company that is looking at making a move away from China? We we know that often the the apprehension that such a move um, causes is is enough to delay and then possibly um, suspend uh, plans that, on the whole, are are beneficial to to the companies. So, to, to the extent that some of these companies may need to have some of their concerns uh, allayed, based on your experience, again, what are what are the keys to make that transition go smoothly? This is Mark. You know, I think you know. With a smaller company, I used to say the, when I say the smaller company, the billion-dollar company, and who maybe has one factory in China or, or, or only sourcing out of China, you know, this this is a daunting thing for them. You know, they they you know they got the boards talking to them, and they've got the duties, they've got the COVID, they've got the higher labor costs. So, you know, uh, so where where once they understand, you know, kind of where they might be able to go and and what are the opportunities, then. 
they have to refocus then, okay, if they're deciding to leave China or severely reduce their their footprint in China, they have to understand how are they going to take care of their physical assets? You know, do they have tooling? How do they, how, how would they manage the tooling? Do they keep the tooling there? Can they move the tooling out? Do they own the tooling? Right. Um, that sort of thing. Um, if they're, if they're deciding to close down permanently, then they have to really unwind, you know, the whole VAT, the whole tax structure and work with the local municipalities because, you know, you never just want to, you know, and some people have done it, and it's and that is just kind of pack your bags and run. But you know, that's not the right answer because you you, know, you certainly want to be good corporate citizens. But more importantly than that, you may want to come back. You may want to continue to work there, you know, right? So you can't be blacklisted. Um, so you have to really understand all the legal ramifications. You know, closing the building and moving the tooling and laying the people off. You know, that's 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 all can be done. It can be done fairly timely. Re- tying up the books. And making sure you're exiting correctly as it pertains to tax and tax liability and what's owed, that can take quite a while. And and typically, most companies need a lot of help on that, uh, just because of it's the Chinese, you know, rules, regulations, etc. So, you know, once you know where your home, where you want to go, then then you really need to focus on on shrinking or or removing your footprint, uh, you know, as as smooth and 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 professional as possible. Yes, um, you know, after a decision is made to to exit and to leave an operation, the process is fairly well prescribed. It's not necessarily straightforward, but it's fairly well prescribed. And uh, we've worked with a, a number of clients on on these, and it, it really the emphasis is on understanding the human resources component, uh, understanding uh, what's uh, what sort of severance and what sort of liabilities you've got, and make sure you fully understand that and comply with it and make sure you can communicate that to employees at the appropriate time and then managing the security aspects of it. Um, there are horror stories abound about uh, uh, these, these activities going, going poorly. Um, and, uh, you know, whether it's uh, uh, security and uh, security of uh, facilities, securities of security of intellectual property, security of people, um, Manage, planning and managing that effectively is, is key. Uh, you can't stress long, uh, strongly enough the, the need to plan. Um, sometimes you don't have as much time as you'd like, but generally we like to see three to four months of a planning exercise going in before a major exit uh, so that we can cover all the bases around security Um HR aspects, dealing with stakeholders, uh, suppliers, customers, local governments, um, and, and have that arranged in advance before actually executing. And then, as, as Mark indicated, after the after the uh, shutdown of an operation, there's still a great deal of work and oftentimes many months of work uh, you're faced with to uh, unwind an entity from a, a tax and legal perspective. Gents, it's been great having you on the podcast with us today. I love hearing war stories. I love hearing the perspectives, the alternatives to China. And, and really, uh, I'm the pragmatist when it comes to China. And, and I've worked with a lot of companies that are going into China for the first time, even during COVID and during the trade war. And so I see that you know, having this measured approach, 
not doing anything too hastily. It all it all resonates well with the way that I think that companies, like you said, should be good corporate citizens, but also should go about running their businesses. You know, as uh, with a runway with multiple multiple options, it it just sounds smart. So uh, we always like to end our podcast with recommendations from our guests, and Fred and I will provide something as well. So we'd love to hear from you uh, as internationalists. We can stay on point with that, or we can do something. Uh, totally off topic. Uh, something you've read, something you've watched, something you listened to, you know, a couple recommendations that you think would be interesting for the audience. You know, we have coming up, and I think it's October. They haven't really picked the final date yet, but the, you know, the, the, uh, the 20th uh, Party Congress, and this is a, a, always a big event in China. And, um, and as I think most of us who have probably been on this podcast have read, you know, uh, President Xi. Uh, is in a very strong position. He's, you know, could be, you know, somewhat president for life, as some of the terms being used. And 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 then so the party of Congress is, according in the reading in the Economist and some other other recent pubs, you know, they're really choosing his supporting crew, over which will drive China from the next five or ten years. And uh, you know, I think what and I think what what the kind of consensus is is. You know, things are probably not going to change dramatically to go back to the, you know, the old days, so to speak, the, the, you know, the dung days, the more open days. So I think when people begin to, you know, start reading and following, again, as I said, the, uh, the economist is always a pretty good read. And, and that's where they're doing a lot of publications on this is, um, you, you, when you do your planning, um, you need to kind of think through, you know, where do we think China is going to be in five or 10 years? And then how, how do you design your strategies to fit in it? And if the same person is on top for the next five, seven, eight years, maybe things aren't going to change all that dramatically from what we're seeing now. So that would be kind of, kind of my snapshot, you know, reading a lot of third party information. I tend to concur. I don't, I don't see a reversal of uh, trajectory uh, over the last, six, seven, eight years, um, more nationalism, more generally less open and more repressive. I, I don't see that trajectory changing anytime in the near future. And it'd probably be reinforced at the party Congress coming up as, as Mark mentioned. So uh, the size of the market in China for many companies is going to continue to be attractive. Um, and so many companies will want to participate there. Um, I guess what I would suggest is a sort of a measured approach, an eye open, an open eye approach towards what the long term environment is going to be, um, uh, and so and, and to uh, take that into account. <clears throat> Particularly along the lines, if you've got intellectual property, for example, that is very sensitive, or uh, could be uh, could be uh, desired by. Uh, the industrial sector in China, many people have heard of the China 2025 policy, which is uh, really to foster indigenous uh, innovation in strategic uh, industries. That'll continue to be uh, to be pressed and emphasized, uh, perhaps a little more quietly than it was a few years ago, because it, it generated some negative international attention. But that's definitely still a consideration. And for companies looking to either move into China or expand there, um, take a hard look at your intellectual property, what you're bringing in and how you're going to protect it before you, before you make that move. 
Great recommendations. Appreciate those. Fred, what do you have for us today? So one of my alma maters, the Chinese University of Hong Kong, does a great job of putting together events on legal issues with, with a focus on Hong Kong and China, but but really more more, bro- more broadly. And I, I, I found out today that they have been recording those and making them available for for later viewing, which is great considering the 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 time difference. And I'm and I'm talking specifically about the the law faculty. Um, they they have done a pretty good job of of making this content available. So uh, I'd encourage everyone who has uh, any interest in in legal issues, but definitely if they have an interest in Asian, Chinese, um, and Hong Kong legal issues, to to take a look at their offerings. Um, their website is law.cuhk.edu.hk, and and take a look because there's there's a lot of material there. The CUHK Faculty of Law webinars. And Jonathan, what about you? Today, I'm recommending something on point with our discussion. Uh, I've mentioned Peter Zion in the past, and he's a geopoliticist with his own consulting firm, came out of Stratfor. And he uh, he pops up periodically in my head. A lot, a lot of times when I'm thinking about macro global issues um, surrounding you know the rise of nations, the fall of nations, uh, population, demographic changes, all of this. So while Dan and Mark are talking about, you know, we're hopping around the countries in Southeast Asia, I was thinking about how geography plays such a massive role in the rise of some countries and others in the flow of migrants. You know, I mean, you see the, the, it's just fascinating how this geography underpins so much of, of why nations uh, can succeed and, and sometimes why they don't. So I recommend, uh, Peter Zion's website is just zion.com, that's Z-E-I-H-A-N.com. And, uh, I, I think if you're the kind of person who wants to understand what's going on in the world, he he doesn't just focus on one area of the world. He hits on a lot of countries, and he's written three books now at this point, and and does uh, there's some of his speaking engagements you can see on YouTube as well. Uh, but I found him a, a kind of a breath of fresh air, uh, fairly unbiased, uh, unvarnished viewpoint. Uh, you know, he doesn't doesn't mince his words, and it's quite a bit of fun to listen to him speak and uh, and read his books. So that's my recommendation for today. If you're a geopolitical wonk or a wannabe wonk, uh, zion.com. With that, uh, Dan, Mark, we want to thank you for being on the podcast again with us today. It certainly was fun and look forward to following your work more. <laughs> thank you very much. It was, it was our pleasure. Nice talking with you. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode. We look forward to connecting with you on social media to continue discussing developments in global law and business. This podcast was produced by Harris Bricken with executive producer Madeline Williams. Music composed by Stephen Schmidt. Tune in next week for another episode. We'll see you then.